Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Trekno Babble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And today we are going to podcast the second part of the, uh, I don't know, what would you call it, opus, uh, <laughs> two-parter, if you want to be pedestrian about it, the second part of the Homefront Paradise Lost two-parter, Paradise Lost. Uh, this is Deep Space Nine Season 4, and Kevin and I both really enjoyed the first part. Uh, we gave it a 10, and so I guess the question is, um, is this going to suffer the fate of... Has it been basically every two-parter in the history of the franchise, I'm, I'm with the possible exception of Menagerie? Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's one. There, I think there was one. I think Maquis. We liked at least as much okay. as the setup because both were, you know, whiz bang action drama setups. Um, so, like, I mean, it's the problem of a two parter. It's just the first part you're give, given the freedom of setting up as complicated a problem as you like because you don't actually have to resolve it in the time allotted. Then, when it comes time to resolve it, you, you know, you, you run into problems. You know, you you. You only have 43 minutes, and you may have given yourself a, you know, you bite off more than you can chew, or you end up with a tonal shift, particularly if a different writing staff is um, handling the episode. Well, yeah, so a lot of those, it seemed like the problem was season-ending cliffhangers. Uh, and as you say, you know, you can have several months of layoff, or different writers, or different staffs, or, you know, setting up a, a massive problem that can't really be resolved quickly but even like gambit which was a mid-season two-parter in tng um that was the one with the vulcan uh, psychic weapon you know that just ended up it's like it was built up so much that you know (laughs) it was like it seemed like you could just sort of step you know uh one foot to the left and avoid this you know uh evil weapon that could destroy everything um you know, so I, I guess a question is, do you think this setup is ripe for that kind of disappointment? Uh, well, n- not to telegraph uh, too much of my review, but I was I was drafting the written portion of the review before we sat down. And I, I do think once we step away from the very interesting philosophical debate of liberty versus security and start actually having to live with the mechanics of Leighton's plot, the episode isn't quite as inspiring. I'll say that. Ch- Sorry, jumping in. Chain of Command. I think we like Chain of Command more in its second part. Mm, yeah, well, I think, yeah, that's... They were so different. Yeah. You know? it, was, it was like the first episode was really just setting up the fact that the second episode existed. Right. It wasn't that the second episode had to resolve the cool setup of the first episode. Um, yeah, but so, but coming back to, yeah, coming, sorry for taking us away, but coming back to this episode, I think when the episode has to focus on the action, like, if nothing else, a complicated, unanswerable philosophical question is not a dramatic problem, it's a dramatic virtue. You know, everyone got a valid point of view in the first half, Every no, nothing got resolved because the question can't really be resolved. It's just a complicated grown-up question and seeing it explored well is actually what's enjoyable once you move from that to a complicated you know 
espionage, sabotage. Like once that moves into political drama, you actually do have to resolve things and you have to get certain places in the time allotted. And I think that that's just harder to do. Like you now are constrained. You actually have to have a good motivation and a good plan and a good resolution and good tension. And overall, I really like this episode. I think it's a very, you know, good to very good episode. Is it as good as the first half? Probably not. All right. Well, why don't we just go ahead and uh, get started? We both have our media queued up, so you should do so at home as well. And we will all press play together in three, two, one, press play. So while we have our little recap here, um, I just want to mention Seven Days in May again. Uh, apparently one of the larger inspirations for the writers here. Uh, terrific movie. Everybody should watch it. Uh, it's also a terrific novel uh, from the 60s. Um, I liked the movie so much that I tracked it down um, in hardcover and read it. Um, you know, that was a story that it does have a very similar setup, and it actually, they were able to resolve it in a way that was pretty satisfying. Um, so I, I wonder if maybe some questions we have are because it's being told in the Star Trek format. Um, you know, like, are there things that we don't believe, or are there items of tension that we feel aren't dramatized enough or something like that. So we'll see. And this is a pretty good uh, recap, actually. You know, they're doing a good job of giving us the main uh, sort of elements of the plot. And I, I will point out that they're skipping all of these superfluous scenes from the beginning of the first episode. And here's our people beaming down to New Orleans. I wonder what that is supposed to be. I've been to New Orleans, and it never looked like that. Yeah, you know, it's like Cisco's desk is so empty. And I'm almost certain that that's a reuse of the desk from uh, Admiral Quinn in Conspiracy, yeah. or maybe in uh, Coming of Age. Those windows are interesting. I wonder what they were going for. It's like kind of a scaffolding. I don't know. I like it. It, it, remind, it looks like you'd think it looked from the outside with all the, you know, new agey water reclamation plant stuff. And I love the view. That mad painting is awesome. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So right away in this episode, they're sort of getting to the... Uh, now we distrust, you know, like, here's a suspicious thing, right? And it's like, none of that was in the first episode. Does that strike you as weird? I guess if this were, you know, a two-hour movie, we could have had a little more time to, like, raise their suspicion. It doesn't bother me that Odo has reviewed the entire record already and identified what's anomalous. Yeah, that, that, that's that, not that my doesn't issue at bother all. me. But it does. It's just that the first episode was so rah rah, let's do this, and now, like, you know, a minute, not even a minute into the second episode, it's like we're already starting the, the wind down. You know, it it might have been conducive to higher drama or greater character stakes if, 
we had seen more of the buildup of security and more of guys like Cisco uh, first being really gung-ho about it and then starting to distrust it and then finding yeah. the sort of you know suspicious item that keys them into the plot. Like I said, I think it's just virtue of, you know, we, we have 43 minutes to tell a story here. That shirt is ridiculous. I mean, I like Joseph Sisko's. Yeah, that that works, but thingy. But Jake, man, come on. So there's the Starfleet logo. <laughs> this sort of giant console here is uh, very '90s, right? <laughs> Well, I, I, I enjoy the idea of Odo standing off screen, because when you think about it, no one ever seems to wonder who else is in the room on the video screen. It's like, you know, that it, it's a nice touch, because I, I think it's not something that would immediately spring to mind when you think of video phones, especially at the time when they when the idea of visual communication wasn't as common as it is now. You know? Oh, yeah. It is interesting that it's a widescreen aspect ratio. Well, I imagine everything's in at least 4K by now. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that because the in conspiracy, for instance, you know, there was that four by three projection screen, or what was obviously to me a projection screen in Picard's quarters. So Cisco kind of stumbles onto this, you know admission that there was something funky going on that's also a very bad place to have a reflective screen like that because you can see you know the the windows you'd think they would have developed better anti-reflective coatings by the 24th century um anyhow it part of my sort of issue with Layton's plot is that there just seem to be so many people in on it and they seem to be so cavalier with the details, you know? It's like, if this Bolian dude didn't know that Cisco was in on it, why would he assume that he was and then talk so freely with him, you know? Oh. Are we... <laughs> no one lies well their first time. They're Starfleet officers. Of course they're bad at being bad guys. They haven't done I it guess. before. Um, or maybe Bolians are just sort of, you know... They're uh, so talkative. Well, well, I mean, we did see Mott and we saw Chell. So we know, it, it's funny. I I keep bringing this up because it's consumed just time-wise most of my recreational life for the past like three weeks. But this History of Rome podcast has actually been somewhat illuminating on humanity as a whole. I actually have no trouble believing that a high-ranking level of a conspiracy can say or do something breathtakingly stupid. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I there's a – like. I just feel like it should be – that fact should be remarked on if the plot turns on it, you know? Cause I, I certainly, I agree, you know, lots of people have done lots of stupid things and lots of nations and plots and, you know, all sorts of things have fallen, uh, based on sort of human, uh, stupidity or frailty. Um, but it just, He doesn't, he doesn't even question whether Cisco knows, you know, he just sort of launches into it. And the same happens with the cadet too. The cadet I, makes I, I a little more sense. I could see the cadet being yeah. intimidated by a captain, 
but I can't see this admiral being, I don't know. And then I also think that the way they developed sort of Joseph Sisko's newly blithe acceptance of the blood testing, uh, it was a little sudden, you know. At, at least Sisko is remarking on it, but... Yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense. Like, of course, the, like, I can list the 9-11 Republicans I know. I mean, I think there's... I think that's credible that someone would, um, you know, turn on a dime that quickly. Well, well, I mean, he was so principled about it. What's a Republican? It's a Democrat who's been mugged. Um, I think I, I think it internally makes sense that his position would change when the crisis went from academic to personal. I, he just seemed so principled about it. Like it was such a deeply held principle. I should think you'd be more conflicted, at least. I I really like this scene between Cisco and Nog. Um, there, there's something really cool about the character arc for Nog, where it there's something there's an aura to Starfleet and a life in Starfleet that you know I think everyone has consumed the Kool Aid at this point. They you know believe in Starfleet as a thing, without, and they don't always show the sort of downside or at least the you know day-to-day issues of living inside this kind of command structure so i i love the look on nog's face when cisco pulls rank for something nog doesn't want to do like i i think it's i it's 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 a good scene it just you know has some dramatic energy because cisco goes from mentor and friend to commanding officer in a blink yeah and cisco is manipulating him right and it's it's fun to see the look on nog's face because you really this is one of those growing up moments for him that was a very dramatic uh, camera pull in there (laughs) this guy looks like such a tool they cast him perfectly yeah and he'll come back in uh valiant Riley Aldrin Shepard. I mean, come on, that that's a little on the nose, don't you think? Is was is is there a Riley astronaut? Because obviously Aldrin and Shepard I recognize, but uh. Well, no, I don't believe there's a Riley. There is Kevin Riley, uh, <laughs> the the famed serenader from. See, I just feel like the cadet should suspect that Cisco's not in on it when he doesn't know the briefing officer's name. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the Red Squad bit actually didn't bother me. I mean, like, I, I think it makes sense that you would pick, you know, capable but young officers whose loyalty you could lean on like it might have made more sense if like pegasus where you know like newly minted ensigns might have made a a slightly more logical choice but this this doesn't nag me too much i think it 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 works in the in in the grand scope of political conspiracies with which i am familiar it's inside the bounds to think that a bunch of impressionable young people would be the ones you could lean on and appeal to grand senses of loyalty and things to break the rules well yeah i mean i think it works in terms of the plot uh but it does fill me with sort of nagging questions for instance uh shepherd here 
says that they ran simulations, you know, and just the fact that there are simulations, that someone has put enough effort and time into this to create simulations for, uh, you know, I mean, invading Earth, basically, um, indicates to me that this is a much wider conspiracy. And so even if I were to believe that people could keep it a secret, which given the Bolian Admiral doesn't seem very <laughs> believable, uh, and given like the shit-eating grin on this guy's face, you know, it's like this guy looks like he enjoys talking about it. You know, well, I'm sure he does. Uh, I do also like I like that they put the Planetary Operations Center in Lisbon, Portugal. I'm happy anytime there's a thing on Earth that is not in San Francisco or Paris. Yeah. It's like yeah. no, good touch, writers. Thank you for remembering Earth as a planet. Well, and actually, it kind of makes a certain amount of sense. You know, it would be a, a coastal city uh, that would sort of be a, a waypoint between two oceans or something. Uh, anyhow, I, um, what was I going to say about that? The, the other issue I have is with the resolution of the episode. So given that this seems to be such a, a wide-ranging conspiracy, I would feel like the Federation government might, like, totally uh, reorganize Starfleet or something, you know? Like... This, yeah, a follow-up might have been fun. This would present such a serious threat to the democratic rule of the Federation that, you know, like they might just disband Starfleet or, you know, so completely reorganize it as to make it unrecognizable or or something, you know. Um, and in Seven Days in May, uh, it's resolved by the resignations of the officers in charge one thing I, I wish that obviously you can't go back and add a character in previous seasons but given that he's supposed to have worked with Leighton on a previous command I would have liked a scene or two more maybe in the previous episode of them like renewing or discussing their friendship because it, it felt a little wrote here where it's like well the script says they used to be friends and i i buy cisco's acting here about the line but it would have been nice to see evidence of the friendship because i think it would have driven home the conflict for cisco yeah i agree with that you see i really liked his performance i liked the way he delivered that line yeah. How do you feel about the gloves? You feel like that's some sort of uh, cultural. Yeah, I imagine that maybe that's for that's just his people wear gloves. I kind of question going straight to the president. I mean, he. I don't know. It's it. It seems like they jumped. Like you, you would want more concrete proof. Though I suppose the cadet confessing would be pretty strong evidence. But still, it seems like there are steps there are further steps they would need to take before showing their hand, if nothing else. So, okay, I take this line here, that even that at least as far as Cisco is concerned, the plot did not include a, like, false flag operation at the peace conference. That was a real thing. Yeah, my, my issue, though, is that when did this uh, device get planted on the other side of the wormhole that would activate it? 
Like open it and close it. Right now, yeah. If that was like seemed like a, that happened before the conference was bombed. Right. If that was a longer term plan, like I could see Layton's plan being set off the wormhole, then set off the power grid, and use the two to make these changes he wanted. And then the peace conference was like you know a happy quote unquote accident. But they should have clarified that. I yeah. I, I agree. And I I kind of wish they'd lit up the Eiffel Tower in that matte painting. I don't know what those lights are supposed to be. They look like floodlights, but they're not lighting anything. Uh, something Iris Stephen Bear talked about was one of his regrets for this episode was the budget um, limited the number of extras they could use. And there I agree with him. I think it would have been more interesting because, you know, you, you mentioned this last episode where it's like there are like five Starfleet officers on this random street corner, in New Orleans. And I get the impression is supposed to be that there are Starfleet officers all over Earth. I would have liked to have seen scenes of that to really drive home what that looked like. Yeah. It, what what would make most the most sense to me is like people being activated like out of a reserve or something or like, or like, like the federalizing of I, I assume earth has to have a civilian law enforcement mechanism and maybe they all get deputized or something you know like that would have been interesting so the public overwhelmingly supports the increased security i wonder how they measure that you know do they have like uh, text, pullers text, that yeah, call text, your communicator. Text your vote to, uh... Or people just, yeah, maybe it's on their their pad or something. They get a little pop-up message. Do you support this? Okay, so whatever my other problems for the mechanics of the plot itself, and I forgive most of those as concessions to the format, this episode has energy and momentum. And the one thing I was thinking the whole time Cisco's in the president's office is, well, you've tipped your hand. You've demonstrated you found out about the conspiracy. How much longer is Leighton going to not do something? And here he is doing something. So, like, the minute Cisco revealed he knew... Leighton responded, which does add some internal credibility to the idea that he is masterminding a plot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, no, I... it, it can never be dramatic, but dramatic to pour tea while you're having a big discussion. It just, you know, looks cool. I think what would have really helped, uh, I agree with you, and this is a fun scene, and that, you know, I agree that there's a good amount of drama here. I think it would have heightened the drama had there been a previous scene right. in which Leighton didn't come out and ask Cisco, but was dr dropping hints. Right, right. You know, like feeling him out. Because the, I suppose maybe that would have telegraphed things too soon for us or something, but I kind of wish there was that sort of dark undercurrent in the previous yeah. episode. Yeah. You know, near the end, in the final 10 minutes. Yeah, good question. Why did you bring me here? <laughs> because you knew we wouldn't see eye to eye on this thing. Yeah, I hoped when you saw you would join us. It's like, 
couldn't you work on him? Couldn't she like try to convince him before he finds out on his own? It's just it's really bad people management. Well, and and had there been an earlier scene of their like actual unadorned friendship, then you could see it as this is Layton's blind spot. Yeah. So maybe two scenes would have. Yeah. Oh, here we go with the Zen Kathy again. I will say the Zen Kathy actually get one of the best treatment in the books that I've ever seen a not just like a like a, a total only... retcon get. Well, it, it was it's just really cool. I thought the way they were described in the books was actually like it took advantage of the idea we don't have to pay to film this and it just sounded really cool. Um, some of the most recent books have left me a little flat, but the actual description of Zen Kathy as a species and a society was really damn interesting so i i appreciated the books for doing that i think layton could have used some humanizing too like maybe this hypothetical scene of cisco and layton being friends could have been like at his house or something yeah with with his son or daughter playing in the next room you know something Right. right i really wish that they made this a little sharper unless unless i'm forgetting and cisco's about to say something for me but anytime um the characters like this invoke the chain of command i'm like well technically the president is in your chain of right like this is what drives me crazy anytime a government argues for its unilateral authority in times of crisis because you're like you can't shred the constitution to do whatever you want because without the constitution you have no actual authority you're just an armed thug like you can't have it both ways you it if the limitations on the president's power as as defined by the constitution mean nothing then neither does the constitution creating the office of president like yeah. that's just that that's the trade off but well it just it seems like such a self-serving art yeah it's well such an obvious it's like you're breaking the chain of command you know and i'm trying to depose the commander in chief right. you know i i presume that's the relationship yeah. here yeah so this scene is interesting. I really like this scene. I like it anytime they let Kalmini be something other than like cherubically charming. Because it's like they picked the correct character to play this scene with because we're so used to and love genial family man O'Brien. So when he gets to play something a little darker, the difference is more stark. So I, I enjoyed that they picked one. I think Kalmini can act so obviously he can play the scene well and just sort of from like a just from the optics of this scene are better than i think they would be with other characters like changeling garrick saying something dark and foreboding would not be as interesting because that's what garrick always says yeah giving these lines i I agree yeah giving these lines to o'brien is fun and they're just you know two good actors playing the hell out of a scene and i like that the changelings get involved at this point just to point out Look what you're doing to yourself. I don't know. There's something fun here where it's like, we don't even have to do this to you. You will do it to yourself. On the other hand... They did blow up a conference. Yes. Yes. Well, but isn't he kind of helping Cisco here? I mean, why give information? It's not very parsimonious uh, as an invading force, you know? He's he's actually helping Cisco. Well, I don't think he's telling Cisco anything he doesn't already know. He he does not believe the changelings are responsible for the 
uh, sabotage of the power relay station. That's true. And I could see this from the changeling angle. One, what villain doesn't like to brag? And two, if they think this will spur Cisco into acting against Leighton, maybe they're hoping a bank shot into a Federation civil war. Well, but, you know, my whole sort of understanding of the changelings to this point is that they're basically invisible. Like, no one ever knows they're there. Like, the founders are legends, you know? It's like, if you pulled everybody on a planet, no one, like, any given planet, all 7 billion people, none of them would ever say, oh, yeah, I had a conversation with a founder once, you know? So it just... They did drop the aura that the founders were like a quasi-mythic, never-seen group of people once we actually met them, which, for better or for worse, you know, I, yeah, I, I understand that, but, you yeah, know, here we are. I do love watching, uh, watching Joseph Sisko talk. It's, he's just, it, he's so good. <laughs> I mean, Brock yeah. Peters is just a great actor. No, there's just a very, um, animated, uh, sort of mirthful quality yeah. to his acting. And I, I like what he brings out in Avery Brooks. They're like, the way they act with each other, like, obviously, you know, he's going to interact with his father differently than he interacts with his officers, and that, that just makes sense. Um, but, I, and, you know, for both his father and his son, I have, I've always liked the way Avery Brooks, the thought he clearly puts into the internal credibility of, of those relationships, and they always pull out, they always come off really well. Okay, we haven't said it. I'm just... I just I wonder where the person is operating that spotlight. <laughs> like do they do they just have towers somewhere? <laughs> I like the joke, everything I learned I learned from Quark. I mean really this is the second time that uh sort of vast conspiracy has overtaken starfleet yeah uh, in the ten, in the past 10 years um i don't know <laughs> you, how how public do you think the the creature conspiracy was well a couple of starfleet admirals did bite it anonymous uh, uh, you know anomalously so i imagine there had to at least be some and they did they did explode a guy's head yeah that's that's that, that's starfleet gonna get on the carpet um I mean, okay, there, there is, I enjoy the way they're displaying the mechanism of his coup here that, I mean, it does make sense. You would promote loyal people to higher positions and then they would both be in a better position to help you and more indebted to you. That, that makes internal sense. 
So it's an interesting file transfer uh, protocol there. You, know, you have to like set it on the table in order to transfer the files. Well, they they hadn't invented Bluetooth yet. Yeah, or Wi-Fi, I guess. And I have to again compliment Susan Gibney, and maybe she's just so like it, this never reads the tiniest bit like Leia Brahms, despite the fact you know, same woman. Um, she really just, and it's not that she doesn't give the character life the way she did for Leia Brahms. It's just an entirely different character. It's like really well done. I mean, I think a lot of actors, even good actors, have a wheelhouse, and you know, most of the characters they play or tend to be good at are within a certain range of that. She's playing a dramatically different woman, and she's doing it really well. Yeah. Oh, the way she's walking is really good. She's really filling out the uniform, you know? Like, yeah, the... she, seems, she seems like someone who is a Starfleet officer. Yeah. Yeah, I refuse to. The, the, the only truly unbelievable thing in this episode is that Parisians would ever consent to skyscrapers in the, in the old city. Yeah. I'm with you there. Uh, okay, I I really have come to hate the blood test because it. I'm trying to think of one instance in which a blood test correctly identified a changeling, and I can't think of one. Every time they do the blood test, it, it's well, wrong. It, it did work in the, what was it called, the adversary? Uh, no, just a... no, because... Bashir was the changeling, and he switched it out to make it look like Eddington was the changeling when he yeah, wasn't. But but the uh, the test did show changeling blood. He just switched the vials. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, as a, as a means of practical changeling detection, it's been evaded successfully by changelings several times. Just putting it out there. So th this is uh, pretty much straight out of Seven Days in May. There was a scene in which a person who had uncovered the conspiracy was placed in detention for a while. I think he needs some just for men. I don't know. I think the the beard is distinguished, and thinking about it, very Roman. It's a very like you can picture this dude's head as like a bust in some museum. I'll say this: I I act I do think that Robert Foxworth did a great job with the role. Like internally, I bought his, you know, he believes his own shtick, and I thought he did that really well. Yeah, no, it's it, a good performance. It, it's funny. There's this. There's a great story. He was he appeared earlier in Babylon Five as a general fighting the secret earth government conspiracy and there was a two-parter involving the plot and he was unavailable to do that again because he had agreed to do uh this episode so they had to kill his character off and you know i i, I find that kind of trivia absolutely fascinating There's something about the way he won't look at Cisco when he answers the question, where it's like, you know, even to himself, he understands that once he has power, he's not going to let it go. And I, I thought that that was an interesting touch.
No, it's a good performance. You know, the way he sort of, you're right about not looking at him, but he, he also is kind of like throwing his head back a little bit, sort yeah. of putting himself in a physical posture as if he's convincing himself. Yeah that it's necessary and that he is the man for the job. Right. And so he's sort of pumping himself up. Right. I, I like that. It's not two dimensionally evil. It's not just a naked power grab. There's a layer there. And I, I think that's good. I think that that is certainly more interesting. I feel like she was in something Was she, she's a woman who died in Voyager. I could I, see that. I, I um, suppose it would have, would have been mentioned on, uh, memory alpha well so it was like a changeling nerve pinch or something yeah i i I appreciate that i guess nothing of interest has been going on on deep space nine during this several month long period see i thought this was like a few weeks like two or three weeks tops all right i'm looking up the uh see if i can find the uh it was a speaking role yeah, here and we go should be, should be the only female besides susan gibney um hmm. uh she is the director of this episode's daughter hmm. um she appeared in an episode of sliders and an episode of 24 I'm trying to see if there's anything else because yeah it's driving me crazy she looks really familiar i i can't decide why i recognize her So they've clearly uh, reused this set <laughs> because it was also Cisco's office. Well, assumably there are the same spot on different floors. Yeah, it's a different desk. You know, um, if this guy were so adamant about neutralizing the changeling threat, wouldn't we just go back to the whole destroying the wormhole idea? Hmm. It seems like that would be a, a more efficient way. Yeah. I will say, I am kind of glad, in a way, that... Uh, when they do actually try to collapse the wormhole, they fail and it has the opposite effect and then they can't because that kind of forecloses that option. It's dramatically more interesting. There's a boom mic in frame just there. Um, I love the, you know, putting Bashir on the bridge for no reason thing. Well, it's that one nagging question we always had about... Uh, cause and effect. Why was Dr. Crusher on the bridge telling us about casualties? I wonder what these elections are like. You know, they must be happening on 150 worlds. Well, I always wanted, like, a clarification. Like, when we say Federation, do you mean 
confederation like it, it like obviously each planet just as a matter of logistical reality has to maintain a very high degree of autonomous control i i think even with federation technology it would be impossible to maintain you know micro control over the day-to-day operations of 150 planets yeah like i don't, I don't think there's a brain big enough to process that many decisions so I, I, that's what I always want to clarify for the for the Federation Council. It's clearly some kind of legislative body, but what does it do? How does it work? How much authority do they have? Do the states ha- do the individual planets have to like certify these decisions? You know, like I really wanted to see that. Well, you'd feel like it, it would have to be that was some CG uh, there with the Defiant and the the Excelsior class uh, ship moving like that. I don't think there is a model pass that can be done that does what that Excelsior ship just did. I really like this battle sequence. This is something else uh, Bear didn't like. He thought that should have been bigger, and they didn't have the money to do it. But I actually really like this sequence. The well, there's a really cool shot, you know, going over the hull. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's coming up. It's really neat. I don't understand why they weren't cloaked when they left. That's a good question. I guess they didn't feel they had to, uh, but yeah, why wouldn't Cisco have told them to? Like stealth would be of the essence here, you think? Well, and so you know, it's the natural. Uh, it's like, well, now that we need X, we, it has we don't been have it, Yeah, that's pretty lame. Anyway, I've got to think that there is an Earth government, like separate from the Federation, separate from the Federation government. And that all the Federation members have their own governments. Right. And that it's kind of like the difference yeah, between... this is a gorgeous fucking shot. No two ways about it. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, that was beautiful. Um, unless they sort of make... Unless Earth is like the District of Columbia, which, I can't, again, I can't imagine on a planetary scale, the District of Columbia. Dear God, it barely works on a city scale. <laughs> well, so... I mean, I think you're right. I don't think any... Uh, multi-planetary government could manage the affairs of all of those planets, like the internal affairs of all those planets. And so it would be kind of like a, an EU sort of thing. Yeah. You know, like where... free trade, free travel, but autonomous laws within certain, you know, upper limits. You're not allowed to, no one's allowed to burn witches at the stake or anything. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's, con- I never noticed that before. I'm always yeah. happy when they do that. It, it thrills me. <laughs> well, so I think it, that's consistent with uh, what we've seen before, you know, and sometimes there'll be Federation members and, you know, like the Enterprise will go there and be like, you're doing what here? You know. Um, but yeah, so like, it seems like the Federation president here was dealing with a lot of internal earth matters. Right. You know? Which, so yeah, like, Part, part of that has to be just time availability, but yeah. you know, it does raise questions. So this is this is a very nicely dramatic scene. Um, is this the first so, mention of quantum torpedoes? Uh, well, within the series. Because... Um, this is, first contact, I think, is the summer after this season. 
yeah, maybe, maybe this is before first contact. I suppose we can just do a little research and I'll figure that out. Okay, I like this scene, and I th and again, I think she does a great job of displaying the conflict inherent in this situation. I really wish they'd given her a real bridge. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, happens all the time. One good hit would probably finish them. It didn't seem like they were that damaged. So how do you feel about Ventine uh, giving up? I wish we had been on the bridge. One, it would let us see the bridge of the Lakota. Um, I would have liked to have seen her make that decision in the moment. I think that would have had, you know, drama. But it may I, I think it makes sense. I, I think, like I said, this is not a coup for its own sake. Even inside Leighton's head, I don't believe he views it as the pretense for what he's doing. I believe he believes it is substantively the correct course of action. So it makes sense that since these people have not abandoned morality, um, that when presented with a moral quandary, they might resolve it in the way they did. That is, that is good. That is interesting. Um, I wish we had gotten to watch her do it because that would have also been interesting. Yeah. You know, we've, we've criticized Avery Brooks before for going off the rails a bit. I think he keeps it pretty well in check here. This is like a tense moment, and he's driving his points home, but I don't think he ever he ever crosses that line into scenery chewing. Yeah, I agree with that. No, this is, this is a good performance. And, you know, this is a dramatic situation that calls for, you know, getting excited, being, uh, you know, projecting, all that stuff. I swear, Starfleet doodads exist only to be dramatically taken off. <laughs> it Actually, I think you could kind of see at the beginning of that uh, shot, that camera shot, that they were sticking out a little bit yeah. more than the regular props. Like, they'd probably fall off if he, like, jumped up and down. Right. Um, I mean, it's clearly the, the sort of magnet thing. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, First Contact was released in November of 96, and this is from January of 96. So I guess this is the first Quantum Torpedo reference. And there they were, standing at the same corner, right. <laughs> being beamed up. So I, got, I just I want to pay attention to... So now it didn't seem right, all those failures everywhere. It's like... Okay, Joseph Sisko, I like you, and I respect you, but your principles seem to be very pliable <laughs> based on the situation. I, like, excising the conversation about the blood screenings, 
I think it, like I I I enjoyed that line. We, we if the Dominion wants to destroy the Federation way of life, they'll have to do it themselves. We will not do it for them. I think that's a great line. And you know, personally speaking, the sort of place I hang my philosophical hat. I I, I think that's a va- that is a valid point. It, you you cannot destroy a society that cares about civil liberties in the name of protecting a society that cares about civil liberties. That's not how it works. So it's a very Star Trek point to make. And I, I, I really like the way they used the Cisco family to portray these things rather than just talk about them. So that's, that still holds for me. I think this was a set that they built just based on the lighting. Uh, there's no way that that exterior lighting is natural. <laughs> it's t- it's too uh, static, you know. Well, I mean, like all those, a lot of those details are like really pretty and really tiny. Like, I mean, this maybe this was the standing set for something else because it's like the there's so much there that yeah. I almost can't imagine that was done on the fly. Were all those people just waiting in line for that conversation to end? Like, do they need reservations in the future? Uh, <laughs> I just want to get back to these questions about the economics of the future being uh, quite different. Okay, Are they so all like, his friends? So, so, like I said, I, I think this episode suffers a little bit from the first one because now we actually have to spend all our time developing the actual conspiracy plot. But that being said, I, I was entertained the entire way through. There wasn't a point where I'm like, oh, God, what are we doing? Like, I, I was, you know, enjoying no, There, there was never a, a facepalm kind of moment. There yeah. was never – and that has happened in several previous uh, second parts. Yeah. Um, you know, especially Descent, but probably also Best of Both Worlds. Uh, Time Zero was pretty good both parts i don't think best of both worlds had a facepalm moment i think it's not as good as part one but i think it's still fun um no and i've been criticizing it the whole way just to you know lend a little variety to the podcast (laughs) uh but it's very enjoyable um you know it it's fun to have this kind of story uh in star trek yeah because it's pretty infrequent um now, in TOS, there there would be stories of individual captains who had, you know, Gone fallen from grace. Yeah. Uh, in TNG, we had Conspiracy, which was, I mean, probably the single best episode of the first season. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that was an alien invasion, so it wasn't sort of its own native corruption, right. you know, the corruption of power. Uh, but stories with those kind of themes have been really enjoyable uh, because it it's a nice change of pace, you know? Yeah. At, to some degree, it can get kind of boring if everyone always agrees with each other and you know everybody is sort of stand-up and heroic and, uh, you know, they're, they're all shining knights, right? So... You know, I, I applaud the direction of the entire uh, plot, both episodes. Uh, but th- this particular episode, in particular, uh, develops the uh, 
you know, sort of bad admiral slash conspiracy. So I think it could have gone further, giving us sort of the nuts and bolts of the conspiracy. Yeah. Um, like maybe some other admirals who were in on it and maybe showing us some of them a little bit more. Like there could have, the scene with the bullion was interesting, but I think it would have been better if it had been a scene in which Cisco was sparring with the bullion, trying to get him to admit things and the bullion not admitting them, you know, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, the, the mechanics of the conspiracy happened very quickly. It just moved so quickly in, um, I, I in, think in maybe... the seven days in May uh, movie. Um, there were uh, two or three scenes in which the Kirk Douglas character who is sort of being played by the Cisco character here, you know, trying to uncover it. And he has confrontations with several of these joint chiefs of staff, uh, but he's not able to get them to admit to it. He's just able to sort of elicit funny sounding responses, you know, but they spar and it's, it's more interesting when we're not quite sure. And it's more interesting when the people on the other end are competent, you know, and don't kind of blow it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think this would have worked uh, like the conspiracy itself would have worked better maybe in like season six or seven of the show when they were just diving in feet first into serialized storytelling because then they could have seeded. Well, this could have been things. a three part story. Yeah, or it could have been an arc, and I think that would have been better. Um, so, but you know, like I said, I, I tend to give it a little leeway for want of more time. I appreciate that problem. Um, in the end, it was well done for what it was. Yeah, for what it, yeah for what it was, the story was well done. The char- character moments, like with Cisco and Nog, or uh, Cisco and his father, were were good. So I can li- I, I can live with that. I-, I would say it's at least average, maybe a little above average writing, just for the ambition of the episode. Like I think they were trying for something, and maybe they didn't succeed perfectly. But I still I. I I'd be hard pressed to call this a below average. Oh, I agree. No, there, there are a lot of good scenes. It's just on some level, the overarching plot isn't as strong as it could be. Yeah. The, the, The scenes, as far as drama, as far as character interaction and development, you know, are, are all quite good. I would say there's no scene in this episode. That's just like, eh, the, the only one that comes close for me, is Joseph Sisko flip-flopping so dramatically on his previously deeply held belief, which is now, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, no big deal, right? I mean, like, he practically disowned his son, right? You know, not not 10 minutes prior in terms of screen time, and now he's just sort of like, oh, la, 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 I got a blood test. I, I feel so good about our Federation overlords, right? You know, I, I don't know. Starfleet overlords. Um, that's the only scene that comes close to not working for me. Uh, all the other scenes work. They all work, you know? And it's not boring at all. There, There is there is no dead space in the episode. Uh, in fact, that's criticism, you know? <laughs> it's like they're cramming so much in that 
you know, it all happens very quickly, and there, there's not, there's, unlike the first episode, there's not a lot of wasted screen time in this episode. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's at least average. I, I would say above average as far as writing. Um. You know, so did anybody stand out for you acting wise? I think Susan Gibney was great. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I liked her. I liked Aaron Eisenberg a lot. Um, I've always liked him. He's a good actor, and I really thought he, you know, for one of the marks for a recurring character for me or a guest star in particular is, do you act like the episode's not about you? Um, there, like, Nog was fully invested in his own life in all of his scenes. Like, he didn't act like he was only there to further the a plot he gave the scene the depth and the nuance for nog is having a significant growth experience even if it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the plot of the episode so i appreciate when an actor can do that where it's like no one thinks they're a secondary character in their own life so nog was still living his life in those moments and i i appreciate that care for acting yeah that's uh that's a good point um, you know, uh, Rene Auberjonois didn't get to do a whole lot. He he just did sort of his basic role, yeah, and played it well. Yeah. Um, there was no cork in this episode. Um, you know the, I suppose Cole Meany did get an interesting part as Changeling. Yeah. Uh, O'Brien. Um, and it's certainly creepy and weird when he sort of. It was almost effeminate, the sort of mannerisms that he affected. Uh, he would do things with his hands and, you know, just be dainty in a way that uh, Chief O'Brien is not. Um, it wasn't great. I mean, it wasn't Olivier or anything, but it was certainly interesting. Uh, Avery Brooks was, I would say, above average for his par. You know, he was above his normal par. Um, some nice scenes with Joseph Sisko, some some really good scenes with Admiral Layton. You know, good drama, not overdone. Um, and, uh, you know, Brock Peters was really good except for that scene with the blood test. Um, and he wasn't bad in the scene. It was bad writing. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I liked the president again. In fact, I liked him even more in this episode. Would you say? Yeah, I thought he did good in the scene where, uh, he's discussing the sort of reality of confronting Leighton at that point. Thought that was well done. Well, um, just his incredulity. Yeah. Uh, was really well played. I, I guess I thought Riley Aldrin Shepard was, you know, kind of a douche which fit the role yeah <laughs> but it might have been maybe a little better had he seemed to have more depth or something um yeah you know there really weren't in fact maybe riley aldrin shepherd was the only character in addition to the previous episode yeah yeah i, I guess maybe the, the guards in the in the prison cell were new extras so there were like three extras or you know three new speaking roles uh, I, I guess the bullion too 
Um, production value. Um, oh, I really love cool the battle. battle. Yeah, that yeah. battle was awesome. I agree with Iris Stephen Bear's assessment that there should have been more extras to underscore the guards everywhere thing, but you know, it's life. But well, still, that space battle alone was just so good. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, the production values here, the space ballot is, is the only thing new yeah. over the previous episode. Yeah, because everything else is the same, and we liked it, yeah. so I still like it. Utilizing all the previous sets and basically all the previous actors, and, um, you know, so we got to see the Defiant and an Excelsior-class ship. Uh, the only maybe bum note was the uh, lack of bridge on the Lakota. Yeah. Um. You know, but that, I mean, heck, it's on a screen. It's like, it would have been good had we had a scene on that bridge, as you said. Um, but that's a writing issue more than a. And production. I will say, I did like that even in the abbreviated bridge, there were still some bodies moving around in the blurred background. Yeah. So at least it. It tried. wasn't like The Wounded, where right. it's like Ben Maxwell in his own room. In a closet somewhere, yeah. Like, what was that? What was that? <laughs> So yeah, uh, they did what they could do with the money that they had. Yeah. You know. Um, so I, I would call the production values at least average, and maybe even a, a tad above. So yeah. overall, it sounds like a four. Yeah, I, I would agree. Overall, this is a four. It's not as good as the first part, but I wouldn't say it, you know, falls apart in comparison. Um, it's not the bit of a letdown that say birthright or um descent was or um even like unification which we liked we just didn't love by relative comparison yeah there's just no way that you could have wrapped up that plot in a satisfying way in one episode um you know the scenes taken as themselves are every bit as good so in the first in Homefront, we had a really good scene between uh, Cisco and his father, you know, talking about sort of the what it means to be a free person, you know. And there were scenes like that that were, you know, everybody's good. Uh, the, the scenes between Cisco and Leighton were excellent as far as dramatics and, and depth of ideas and all that stuff. It's really just the overall plot that. To me, it, there's, there's just a bit of creakiness, you know, there's a bit of, uh, you know, this is a show that often stuff gets done really quickly, and sometimes it gets done really well, and sometimes you wish they'd had two or three more drafts to really tighten it up, to really expand what needed to be expanded, to cut what needed to be cut, um, and that's the feeling I get from this. And I think often the beginnings of things are the easiest things to write yeah. and the resolutions of things are the hardest things to write. Agreed. And so it, it really shows when you're on a limited time frame, especially during the resolutions of stories. You know, I think that if you want to look at something like generations, for instance, you know, it's like the beginning is so much stronger than the resolution. Yeah. Uh, you know, the setup is good. Like the it's idea a, of the Nexus is cool. The application of the Nexus was not as cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas a movie like First Contact, uh, 
they had longer to work on it. And so, you know, it, it was it was more even toned from beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was it was well executed. And so that might be the sort of uh, the fly in the ointment for a lot of these two parters in Star Trek. You know, they have to kind of rush to get it done. Yeah. And it's it's easier to rush the first part of something than it is to rush the second part. Uh, you know. So, I don't know. Um, it's still above average, yeah. Yeah. And as far as Deep Space Nine goes, I would say this two-parter is the best Deep Space Nine we've got. Hmm. Pretty easily, actually. I don't Which know if I ten- would rate this higher than, say, uh, Visitor or... The visitor? or a duet or something. I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, What I continue to appreciate about this episode is I think it is a story that Deep Space Nine is in a better position than the other series to tell. Like, like Next Generation's conspiracy is going to be the alien invaders because they're going to come in and save the day. The problem with... There was no internal problem with humanity or Starfleet to be solved by conspiracy. I think Star, I think Next Generation, which I which I love and is my favorite, is just a generally more optimistic show, and and it's a less serialized show. I think you yeah. need the serialized storytelling and slightly darker outlook on the world to get to this story credibly. So Deep Space Nine is in a unique position to tell it. Well, they, they certainly were never going to tell a story like this while Roddenberry was alive. No, um, nope. People are perfect. They don't even have interpersonal conflict, and they don't fear death. Yeah. And they don't mourn their parents, like, you know, whatever, yeah. Um, <laughs> they can have sexual relationships without jealousy. Yeah. I'm like, that's, every human yeah, on Earth that's right this, now. The, there's science fiction. Um, but yeah, I I agree. This, this is still an above-average episode. It is just not quite as good as the setup. And I think what it comes down to is, I think had there been one or two more scenes of either Cisco and Layton's friendship, or directly engaging the philosophy question, the philosophical question set up by the first episode, that might have pulled it up a little. But just focusing on the mechanics of the conspiracy leaves us just a little short of truly awesome. Yeah, you know, so I agree. Uh, that's a total of eight. I I just I want to think about what the best Deep Space Nine has been. Um, you know, Visitor definitely. Uh, I think this two-parter is definitely way up there. And so just those two right there, <laughs> they basically don't take place on the station at all. <laughs> and they they have nothing to do with Bajor, you know? And it kind of, it seems conspicuous to me that once they're freed from the setup, they're actually telling better, more vital, more interesting stories. Um, and that I don't say that to mean that somehow the Bajor setup is inherently flawed or uninteresting because they've told some good stories with it. I just feel like maybe the writers, some of them are into it and like it, but some of them, it just doesn't do anything for them. Well, I, I think they needed a clear picture going in of what they wanted to do with the stories. I mean, particularly with the whole Cisco as religious icon thing, they came up with what you leave behind, I swear, like on the car ride to the studio that morning. Like, what? what's the Emissary's final thing? This. 
Yeah. Whatever this is. Like, I think if you wanted to do those things, you needed to have a much sharper picture from the outset that you could tell even guest writers, here's what Be- here's what Bajoran politics are, here's what they are not, here's what the people are, here's what they are not, and whatever you do, even tangentially, cannot breach these rules, would have helped whip that story into shape. But that wasn't a place they were in at the start of New Space Nine, sadly. Well, so... Yeah, going forward, it seems like the show's going to evolve into much more of a Deep Space Nine is a frontier outpost, and the Bajoran politics aren't as important as Deep Space Nine's location uh, as, you know, like a barrier between the Federation and and a foe. Right. You know, Um, which... I guess that's kind of what the uh, it's what they were going for. Um, it's it's you know there was a directive before the beginning of the season uh, from the studio to punch it up a little bit, you know, to sort of jazz it up and make it more exciting and you know make it more appealing to the audience to increase ratings basically. And you know, I mean, I think they yeah, I think so they far, accomplished so good. it. Yeah, it's it it's just interesting to see what what the evolution is. You know, this show is changing more than any of the previous or probably subsequent shows. Yeah. Um, you know, Voyager also is going to do you know with the Seven of Nine story arc, uh, it is going to change to some degree, but it ends up really only being a character swap and doesn't really fundamentally change the show. Um, you know, I, you can disagree with me here, but I, I feel like if you watch a first season episode of Voyager and a sixth season episode, the only difference is that there's, you know, a, a character with giant boobs, you know, like as far as the rest of the characters go and the basics, the, the basic tone of the show, it, it, it's still basically the same. Whereas Deep Space Nine, you like if you didn't really know all the plots of every episode, which I don't, um, you know, because I haven't watched it nearly as much as I have the other series, but you can immediately tell that you're in seasons one through three or something four and later, you know, yeah. in, immediately. It's like there's just a totally different energy to the show. Um, and given the low ratings of seasons one through three that we've given, uh, it's probably for the best. Yeah. Um, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, one of my criticisms of Voyager is kind of that I don't think there is enough differentiation between season one and season seven. I don't feel there's enough, especially if the point of your show is a story about a ship cut off from the motherland and what happens. I don't think enough actually happens oh yeah the 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 galactic reset button is definitely one of the the key failings like even even for tng which didn't engage in arc storytelling i still think you sense a maturity an ease a comfort a familiarity a sense of a, a stronger sense of family between say season one and season seven or even season three and season seven like there's a sense of these characters are older and more mature and better at their jobs and that i kind of did maybe except for balana and the Balana and paris yeah like a sense of do, do i really but like as a as a ship like you watch season seven you go oh this is season seven there's an aura 
that I feel is lacking by season seven of Voyager. But yeah, Deep Space well, Nine. At some point, you, they're like you have to. You have to remember though that uh, with TNG there was an obvious barometer, and that was Jonathan Frakes's weight. <laughs> <laughs> So you just look at Riker and you're like, oh, well, we're in season four now. <laughs> now we're in season six. Um, well, I guess you could say the same about Paris's hairline. Paris's hair, yeah. <laughs> and, and Robert Duncan McNeil did pack on a few pounds, but not to the degree that John no, no, did. No, no, oh, no. Which, by the way, apropos for the moment, if anyone hasn't seen Scroll Down Riker yet, it will put a smile on your face. It's hilarious. Just, just scroll down Riker. Yeah, you. It's a picture of Riker, and you scroll down with your mouse wheel, and the picture zooms in on Riker until it throws a Riker quote at you, and it's oddly charming and repetitively compelling. It's okay. it, it's worth the fifteen seconds you will spend on it. All right. Well, on that note, um, that yeah. is an eight for for Paradise Lost, and you, you know, eighteen out of twenty for uh for a two parter is not bad. And probably above average for the for two parters as a, as a unit. No, this is probably my favorite uh, two parter, with the possible exception of Menagerie in TOS. Um, it's got a lot of interesting ideas. It's well done. It's it's exciting throughout both parts. Um, it's not perfect, but so little is. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. The, this. This is the kind of story that actually makes me excited to watch Deep Space Nine. Yeah, uh, and I'll certainly agree with that. By the time we hit season four, it's like, oh, yes, gripping storytelling. That's what we were missing. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember why I consented to watch this, you know. <laughs> the first three seasons, it's like, man, what the hell? Uh, season three showed some glimmers. It still had well, some mushy parts. But, yeah, season four feels like... Like, there's a real momentum here. <laughs> All right. Well. All right. That's, yeah, eight for Paradise Lost, and uh, we'll, we'll see you for the next podcast here at Trek Babble. Have a good yep. night. Live long and prosper. <laughs>